Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. I'd like to welcome Beth Sperber-Ritchie to the podcast. Beth is a licensed psychologist and consultant in private practice in the Washington, D.C. area. Dr. Ritchie works with nonprofit leaders on how to sustain their staff and their mission, given the grind of social change work. She gives workshops and presentations on managing stress and burnout, vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue, improving cross-cultural communication and counseling skills, and setting boundaries for frontline employees. Her workshops focus on practical skills and engaged involvement for all participants. Beth and I talk about what burnout is and why burnout is so prevalent in the nonprofit sector, why taking pauses is so important, and what some of the research shows about rest and productivity. Did you know that people who take vacations get higher ratings from their supervisors? We also delve into when vicarious trauma impacts staff and how this shows up in organizational culture and why dealing with these issues goes way beyond putting together a wellness program or designating a small part of your office as the place that people can do yoga and what to do instead. So welcome, Beth. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you you on. Thanks. It's great to be here. So just to get started, could you tell us a little bit about kind of what drew you to this work and how you got to where you are, kind of describe your journey? to where you are now. Absolutely. So I got involved doing clinical work with trauma survivors. I'm a psychologist and and the clinical work came kind of logically out of the stuff I was studying when I was back in graduate school. And I, I began working with trauma survivors clinically in the 90s. And as much as I'm passionate about that work and I've enjoyed that work and felt it's been very meaningful to me over the years, I began to realize, oh, I'm talking to one person at a time and I'm helping one person at a time. And I started to look for the ways in which I could multiply the impact that I could have. Um, And consulting with organizations just seemed like a logical next step. For me, it really started when a friend of mine started an organization that helped landmine survivors all around the world. And he was asking all the right questions about how to get landmine survivors back into the workforce. And, you know, how do we take somebody, for example, who's a farmer and who's lost their limbs in a landmine accident? How do we get that person back into the paid workforce and how do they support their family and so forth, but wasn't really asking the questions about what's the impact of the trauma on the person. And I started asking him those questions and that led me to work as a consultant with his organization. And then eventually, because it was a new organization, to also talk to him a lot about sort of what are the organizational policies and procedures and how do you... um, What practices can you put in place uh, for your staff that's going to be dealing with this really traumatic material on a daily basis? So that was kind of what got my foot in the door. And when I saw, oh, here's a way to have an impact on so many more people at once, it's what really hooked me to the idea of doing consulting in this area. And I know when you and I first spoke, we talked a little bit about the whole idea that you have about how important it is to make healthy organizational cultures, that it's, you know, not just enough to work with an organization. The goal is to help them make the the organizational culture healthy. And that's such a dovetail for me with this work that really it's an opportunity to help organizations where people are helping folks who have experienced trauma, how do they keep their staff healthy and how do they keep the organization healthy as they move through working in this, in this arena, whatever that arena might be. 
Sure. Yeah. And part of the goal of this podcast is to help pro- uh, progressive nonprofit leaders, you know, do that work that they want to do to build a better world, but without, you know, really becoming a martyr to the cause. And yes. so much of your work centers around that, which is really, you know, I was like very intrigued by it. And one of the things that you help organizations with is kind of, you know, managing stress and burnout. And I feel like that is so much part of the nonprofit sector that people almost see it as a given. Yes. To the point where if they're not experiencing it, they think they're not truly dedicated to the cause. Yes. Like they're Um, not working hard enough if they're not in pain. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Exactly. So I'm curious, how do you define burnout? Because I think it's a term, I mean, most people I think have a sense of what stress is and and that's thrown around a lot, but burnout's like to another level. And I'm not sure that everyone really defines it the same way. Well, I think you're right. Everybody does not define it the the same way. Um, When I'm working with organizations, I get people to take a look and do a little bit of an assessment of their own level of burnout. And for me, burnout is not just that there is stress in your work because lots of work has stress. Burnout to me is that sort of fundamental fatigue, the, you know, one could even say like the moral distress or the moral level of fatigue where you just find it difficult to to get the motivation to do even the simplest of tasks. The other piece of this for organizations that work with trauma survivors is the vicarious trauma of hearing those stories also has an impact on on the listener to the point where they can actually get post-traumatic stress symptoms similar to the ones that the survivors themselves get where their worldview is actually shifted. I think that that's particularly a hallmark of vicarious trauma, but I think it's also true in burnout that it's almost a worldview switch where what used to be something that motivated you and got you excited and you had the drive and the and the burn to to make this change in the world, that that gets to the point where you're so tired and so um, hopeless that there's actually been a shift in the way you view the world. And that to me is the difference between burnout and just general stress. I think general stress is easier to recover from. I think burnout, I have a couple of nonprofit leaders that I'm working with at the moment who who both like the the idea of burnout rehab. That's what we've been calling it. Um, (laughs) So what what are your steps for burnout rehab? You know, it depends a lot on the individual human being, right? Like, so, you know, each burnout rehab is its own special thing. But the thing that I, I say to everybody I work with is you need to find the thing that works for you and then apply it liberally. And the metaphor I use is is that of a stress fracture. I um, somehow, despite not being athletic myself, produced three children who are athletes. And, you know, one of my children played right through a stress fracture. He continued to play. My daughters are the same way. One of them had a, her knee was ripped open in a soccer incident and she wasn't even aware that she was bleeding. They had to take her off the field because apparently it's not legal to bleed while you're playing soccer. You have to be taken off the field. She was not, did not feel like that was necessary. But that, those to me, those metaphors of the stress fracture or the, you know, you're playing so hard that you don't even realize you have a ripped open knee is exactly what happens with our nonprofit leaders, that they're working so hard hard and so str- so beyond stress that they're at the point where they don't even realize that they're bleeding or that they have a stress fracture. And in the same way that with a stress fracture or with an open knee, you would have to come off the field. That's sort of step one for burnout rehab as far as I'm concerned is how do you get off the field? And you don't want to get off the field completely. The athletes don't want to get off the field completely. They don't want to get off the field at all and neither do the nonprofit leaders. So we have to sort of get them off the field in one way or another, figure out ways to put boundaries around the work, either in terms of time, you are allowed to work X or Y amount of hours a day 
day and that's it, or you are no longer allowed to work Saturdays and Sundays, or you know, you know, I know nonprofit leaders that I've worked with who are working on vacation. So I remind them that that's not actually vacation. So some of it is is putting boundaries around the work and recognizing that you have a stress fracture and therefore you don't want to go back out on the field and play play the sport again. But the other is to sort of figure out what's sustainable for them in the long haul. Um, how can they individually find that burnout rehab that works? The metaphor I like is the idea of, you know, we all think about filling our cup. Is your, you know, is your cup half full? Is it half empty? The whole notion of full cup to me is that that full cup then can spill over onto other people. So a lot of nonprofit leaders, as you said, they feel like if they're not feeling burnt out, then they're not really working that hard or they're not really doing their job. And I remind them that filling their own cup is a way actually to help other people because it allows them to keep going in the long haul. And I think models it for uh, any staff that are working Absolutely. for them. Because I mean, I've talked to so many executive directors who like, well, I tell my staff not to work on the weekends. I'm like, right. okay, are you working on the weekends? Are you sending them an email? Are you sending them an email on vacation? Yeah. Um, well, if you're doing that, no matter what you say, and my mother loved to say, do as I say, not as I do, but clearly yes. that doesn't work. No. Nope. Um, you know, we watch what people, how people behave, and that's really the expectation. And so people see that yep. and they feel Absolutely. they have to, to work towards it. They have um, to meet what, yeah, what their supervisor is doing, what the leadership of the organization is doing. I have said more times than I can count that whole thing about emailing on vacation. You can have a company policy that says you absolutely must take X or Y amount of vacation. I know a number of organizations that the way they respond to this is mandatory vacation, right? You must take a break because we want you to be here for the long haul. But then they, as you say, write emails on vacation. If you're writing emails on vacation, then your staff gets the message. They should never take a break. And we've got excellent research out there that talks about what taking a break does for people and how much more productive people are even after a short break. And it doesn't even matter what field they're in. This research has been done across, I don't know how many different fields. I, I think of one, I'm not going to come up with a citation right off the top of my head, but I think of one group that looked at basketball players. Their, you know, their free throw percentage went up when they took breaks, when they took breaks from, from working out. Um, we know it's true with, you know, folks in the arts. We know it's true with folks in business. We know, I mean, people have looked at this in terms of, of the research on taking a break on from so many different perspectives. People who take vacations get um, higher ratings from their supervisors in terms of being more effective employees. And it's correlated very strongly with the number of days of vacation they actually take. So we know that the research tells us that this is how we rehab for burnout and how we come back. But as I say, it's an individualized program in terms of how you actually get the person to, to make the cognitive switch to this is actually good for me. I really need to do this. Yeah. And from my experience, I mean, I, I have both had sports injuries and I feel like I've probably experienced burnout at some point in my career. And I do feel like with both, you kind of don't come back to the to where you were before the injury. Yeah. You know, and and I think it's also ebbs and flows over, you know, over the span of a career, you know, what you might have been able to do in your 20s or maybe when you were in a startup phase with an organization, it needs to shift and yet so many times people don't shift because they started out a certain way, you know, working a certain way either for an established organization or, you know, as a founder, let's say or whatever and and then that's just becomes the culture. So, yeah, just being much more mindful of how 
are you setting those boundaries? And then, you know, what are those different things that fill your cup? And I, I feel like I've seen so much about that research that you're talking, and yet somehow in our culture, there's still so, such, um, I don't know, even the word like bravado about this kind of macho, we've got to always be working, got to always be busy. I'm busier than you stuff that I'm trying to like step out of. Like, I don't need that. For most people, they think, well, it's not, it's not possible for me to do it anything any way differently. Yeah. So for some people, it is really, I would say a failure of their imagination, right? That they can't imagine that taking breaks would have a positive impact or that that they could do it in a different way than they did it, let's say, in their 20s, now that they have different responsibilities at home. It is ironic, I think, that corona and the coronavirus has caused a lot of people to really rethink and to look for new ways to figure this out because just plugging through is not going to work if you have a an eight-year-old at home who is needs your attention and needs to get educated and needs your help in getting the education that they need, um, that folks are, are looking around and saying, oh, wait, I do have to figure out a new way. Um, so I do think that this is an opportunity. That's the silver lining. Um, there's an opportunity here for folks to get a little bit creative about how they approach their work and maybe look at it a different way. Um, when you describe so nicely the whole notion of burnout rehab being this combination of sets and boundaries and then the TLC, what I, you know, and how you fill your own cup. What I always say to people is sometimes how you fill your cup is the work, right? So it's not necessarily, it's what I, I like to say, self-care is not always a bath bomb, right? Like right. this is not, it's not about going to the spa. It's not, there are a lot of people for whom the work itself is so fulfilling that it does fill their cup. And I say, amen to that. Then you're probably not burnt out. Um, but for other folks in your organization, that might not be true. Mm. And the other piece of this is that it's um, when you are trying to figure out how is it that I'm going to fill my cup, part of the reason the work fills your cup is when you are connected to the mission. And what ends up happening is we get into, you know, meets, getting ready for the board meeting. And the actual getting ready for the board meeting becomes this huge stress. And that is a disconnect from what is our mission or what is our goal, even though the board is important and that helps move the organization forward and it is connected to the mission. When we get too wrapped up in the, I've got this meeting and then that meeting, or I need to make these fundraising calls, or I need to get ready for the board meeting, whatever the sort of day-to-day -day logistics of the organization are, that those day-to-day -day logistics kind of disconnect us from the mission. And part of what refills our cup in the work is mission-driven work or mission-focused perspective. And that's also something that people can get dis disconnected from, and that can also contribute to burnout. So sure. when someone says, no, I just care so much about this work, that's what drives me. That's what fills my cup. I, with that kind of a person, my response is, okay, when was the last time you were really connected to the mission of the organization, as opposed to just what it takes to Making run an it organization? function as an organization. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, for people who are not, <laughs> who are not yet willing to um, say, oh, I just need to fill my cup. And that means, you know, going out in nature. For those people, I would say, yeah, well, when was the last time you actually were connected to why you came into this work in the first place? 
And they could do both. They Absolutely. could uh, take a walking meeting. I've been doing a lot of those uh, since coronavirus. So, Absolutely. Um, I am pro-walking you know, meeting. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are ways to combine. Absolutely. Move your yeah. body, be outside, and also get something done. So it's a win-win-win. Yeah. So you work with organizations where the staff are really experiencing what goes beyond day-to-day stress of, of vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue. Can you first both define those things and then kind of tell me who's typically affected and how that shows up in organizations? Absolutely. So the the difference to me between vicarious trauma, let's say, and burnout is that piece that I said before of a shift in worldview, that that shift in worldview of maybe seeing the world as a little bit less safe. If you had gone into this believing sort of there are good people in the world and there's good things in the world, uh, being exposed to a steady diet of trauma can eat away at that pretty quickly. The other way I think of it is, you know, just in terms of how you get burnout or how you become burned out and how you get vicarious trauma, you could get vicarious trauma after a particularly difficult experience one time, whereas burnout is more like the steady drip of water eroding rock, right? You you sort of wake up one day and kind of look around and say, oh, I'm burnt out, but it's been based on, you know, this slow, steady drip of the difficulty of the work that you're doing. The other piece between burnout and vicarious trauma to me, you know, vicarious trauma is actually about being exposed to traumatic material, whereas burnout can happen in all sorts of organizations. It might, you know, you might be an organization that is working on social change and you might feel burnt out by the slow pace or by the backward steps that, you know, you feel like is happening in a particular environment. Um, But that's different from actually being exposed to traumatic material. So who tends to get vicarious trauma? I would say most most times it's first responders in this environment, healthcare workers, but it's also people who hear the stories. I, I've worked now with two, I'm, I'm working with two different gun violence prevention organizations. And you might go into that because you're politically motivated and you feel like you want to change the political strategies and you're an advocate, but you, you are telling the stories of people whose lives have been shattered because of a murder that they experienced or because they were part of a mass shooting or because of other traumatic material that, that they're going to have to process. So anyone in the organization who is having contact with survivors and in those two organizations, most gun violence prevention organizations, the survivors are at the forefront of the advocacy work. So you're going to be hearing those stories. And anyone from the person who's sitting at the front desk in the organization to the CEO to the you know ED, whoever it is, everyone in the organization could potentially be exposed to the traumatic material. And that's different than, again, than just the burnout of, you know, for example, although I, I actually... One of my children works in the in the climate change field, and she might argue that there's some pretty traumatic scenarios out there. It's an example of it's a long haul, it's a lot of work, it's a and you could get burnt out by the enormity of the problem and the small steps that you are making to to make change in that arena, but you're not actually being exposed for the most part to actual trauma or to the traumatic experiences of others. So that's the big difference. And 
certainly people who get vicarious trauma can also be burnt out, but it's not always true that people who are burnt out also have vicarious trauma if they've not right, been right. exposed directly to right. that material. Yeah, yeah. My my daughter worked doing direct service with a number of different groups, working with students in, in lower resource schools, helping them with, you know, college access. And there was always something going on with one of the students, you know, something, maybe not directly with them, but then with their, with their family and just hearing those stories all the time. And one thing that was interesting that you said before was that people can experience PTSD symptoms. And I feel like in the media and what people have heard about PTSD, there's kind of this, I mean, certainly maybe it's where it showed up first and where people learned about it first in terms of veterans. But I feel like the way the media covers it, it's as if veterans are the only people who experience PTSD. And that's so not true. So I'm curious if you could just share kind of what would be some of the signs that people might, you know, if they're experiencing that and not really knowing what's going on, what might be some things of how it shows up for them? So particularly for people for whom it's vicarious trauma, the, the, I always describe the post traumatic stress disorder symptoms as being a pendulum swing between numbing out and, and kind of overfeeling or, or feeling to a larger degree, we call it hyper arousal in our field, right? That you're, you're go from zero to 60 in terms of emotional response. Some of the other classic symptoms are people having nightmares or having flashbacks to the event. That can even true be true if you just heard about the event and didn't witness it or didn't um, experience it it yourself. I can say personally, one of the ways that I realized I had vicarious trauma in the early days of becoming a therapist who worked primarily with trauma survivors was that I would have nightmares about the things that had happened to my clients Mm. happening to myself or to members of my family. So it can show up in all sorts of different ways, but I think those are the two kind of hallmarks is if you're feeling almost a lack of feeling, a numbed out response to something that in the past probably would have generated some kind of response for you or in the opposite direction. You feel like everything, you know, people think of PTSD being somebody car backfire and they think it's a gunshot and they jump through the roof, but that can be true for for anybody. They can have a hyper emotional response to a story they hear, to a smell they smell, to a sound that is not like a gunshot. You know, there are lots of different ways that people can experience that. And that could be true for your daughter as well. Like, She's heard those stories enough that she becomes um, hypervigilant about scenarios that she might be in that are similar to what she's heard from her clientele. Sure. And how does this impact the organization at large? I mean, certainly it, it impacts the people who are providing direct service, working on the front lines, but I'm guessing that there are ways that it shows up throughout the organization and kind of impacts culture as well. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the most obvious is when you have high turnover in an organization because people, you know, as you said, people sort of think of the nonprofit, progressive nonprofit world as like, I've had people say to me, yeah, we assume that people will be gone in about two to two and a half years, right? That that's sort of the time frame, and that they sort of see that as an acceptable outcome. Um, we'll just get some new, you know, 20 something graduates from college. And burn them out and right, give exactly. them precarious trauma exactly. and say and goodbye. Move on to the next. Exactly. So I think that there is sort of this sense of like it's inevitable. And my feeling is it's not inevitable. It doesn't have to be inevitable. And that you lose things as an organization that turnover is really expensive. It's expensive in terms of time, right? Because now members of your staff have to spend time, even if you have an HR department. Other members of your staff who are content folk are also going to have to interview people and figure out who they want to bring on. You have the, so that's a time issue, time 
obviously costs money. You're not doing the other things that you need to be doing when you're doing that work. You have to train new people over and over again. You lose the historical memory that goes with the folk and you lose the relationships that those folks have built, whether it's with a board member or with fundraising, sort, you know, a funder or with, you know, other members of the staff, you lose when they burn out and leave or when they get vicarious trauma and leave you lose all of these intangibles in addition to the time and money that you've spent on the hiring process. So turnover is more than just, oh, it's another hiring process, which is... Expensive. Well, and it also impacts all the people who are left behind because yes. I, I'm thinking over my, you know, whatever, 20 plus years at nonprofits and to think I'd, I'd have to go back and calculate, but what was the percentage when I was actually doing a part of someone else's job? Yes. Because we all had to, you know, so-and-so left. And so we had to divvy it up. Rarely is there, you know, people feel like there's the bandwidth or the resources to hire, you know, a temp or that feels harder than just doing it yourself or those kinds of things. So, you know, there's all sorts of ripple effects. Absolutely. And those ripple effects then potentially contribute to the burnout of the rest of your staff because they're now doing more work, right? So the end. It's a vicious cycle. it, it, It can be. It absolutely can be. And my feeling is it doesn't have to be, right? Folks so what are some of the to. things that organizations can do to take steps to, you know, have it not be an inevitability? There are actually some decent uh, organizational assessments out there, mostly, you know, talking to the members of your staff to figure out. Um, one of the things I think that's helpful about bringing a consultant like me in is that I can do that in a way that folks potentially can feel like their responses are actually anonymous. And so they can be hopefully a little bit more candid and honest about what their experience is like. Sometimes people don't even realize that what they're doing, right? I'm sending an email on Sunday night because I'm living at home with my family during Corona. And I know that tomorrow morning when you all need this information, I'm going to be, you know, homeschooling my kid. Okay, great. How about you try making that explicit? I'm sorry. I've sent this email more times than I can count. I'm sorry. I'm sending you an email on Sunday night. I don't expect a response. The reason I'm sending it on Sunday night is because I know you need this tomorrow. And I know that I have the following things tomorrow that are not work-related. They're actually, I have to take my kid to the doctor in the morning. So therefore, whatever it is, um, to sort of just send the message. So a piece of it is assessing the culture to see whether this is a we should be responsive all the time. This is a 24-7 kind of experience. Always be available. See if that message is being sent out there. But the other pieces is to are to actually ask staff what would support them. So just as you asked me before, well, what does burnout rehab look at like? And my response unhelpfully was you know, depends on the person. The same thing is true. What's going to work for this staff? I don't know. But I'm going to ask that staff so that that staff, you know, people think, oh, well, we're going to put in a wellness program. This is always my favorite. We're going to put in a wellness program. We're going to convert this empty office into a wellness spot. And we're going to put like water sounds and a, an exercise ball and some yoga mat and let people do what they want with it. My feeling is don't waste your money, even though that's not a lot of money. Don't waste your money. Spend some time talking to your staff about what actually feels like, you know, a wellness moment for them. Maybe what feels like a wellness moment for them is everybody actually getting together and talking about the work, right? Maybe it's about sharing wins. Maybe it's about, you know, an opportunity to have, I have one organization that I work with that in the last couple of weeks has decided to give all of their employees eight hours of flex time to use during the work week. At any time you want, 
discuss it with your manager, but here's some flex time because they're recognizing the impact of coronavirus and what it means to have your whole family at home, right? So you might not have computer access or Wi-Fi access at X or Y time during the day, or you may need to be caring for an elderly relative or for a child or for each other or whatever it is. That was something that came from the staff as something that would would be useful to them. If they just felt like they were not stuck inside these core hours, then they could help their kid during the day and work at night. And that would be seen as perfectly um, appropriate. And maybe they can't get an eight-hour workday in. So having those eight hours of flexibility gives them an opportunity that they otherwise wouldn't have had. To me, it's really about assessing from that particular staff what feels to them like it would sustain them in the long haul. Yeah, so a lot of this comes down to kind of setting appropriate boundaries and then, you know, as you said, kind of filling your cup. So what are some of your favorite ways to to fill your cup? So being in nature is huge. On Mother's Day, my husband, who I have been married for almost 30 years, and he he knows me. He knows the goal is to get to some body of water. Mm. There are no large bodies of water near where I live, but we can walk to a creek. That that'll do. So we, you know, get outside and be near water. That for me is is the big one. Um, and then the other one is music. Either making music with friends or listening to new music that I just got exposed to for the first time. Those are really big for me in terms of filling my cup. Awesome. How about you? Um, well, it's funny, the, the water thing for sure. I once went on a vacation where we only were by water one day and I realized, no, this is not a vacation for me. I need to be by water the entire vacation, whether uh-huh. it's a beach or at a lake or, you know, kayaking or something. So Take a bottle of body water, any body of water. Right. So I spend my, my summer at the pool. So I'm, I'm a little nervous about this summer. I think <laughs> kayaking will be the thing that keeps me going um, yeah. throughout this summer months. And then, yeah, doing something that's that kind of uses a different part of your brain. So you talked yes. about music. And I, I used to play music as a, as a younger person, and maybe one day I will again. But these days I've been playing around with drawing. I'm, I'm no great artist. I actually do not call myself that purposefully so that I can, you know, continue to just dabble. You know, I get that same kind of flow. And then for me, sports. I love mm-hmm. to play sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, anything active, getting the body moving, all those things that are like, don't have to do with being at a computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Getting away from the computer is huge, especially right now. And what I also say to people is that sometimes it even helps to be doing something that is a volunteer thing. You know, my family packs boxes at a local food pantry and, you know, it's physical work. So I like that. And it's, so it's different. It's not sitting at a computer, but also I'm not in charge. Mm. So that also fills my cup, right? Like mm-hmm. being able to do something that's good and helpful for somebody else, but I didn't have to organize it. I can just show up, pack my boxes, be with my family and leave. Fantastic, right? So again, it doesn't have to be a bath bomb. It doesn't have to be, I'm going right. to go It's not just about getting a manicure. Exactly. Sometimes it is actually about providing service, but providing service in a way that feels different for you or is not the same thing over and over again because you know, our brains crave, crave novelty and our, uh, we need to use our bodies in different ways and we need to use our minds in different ways. And anything we do that sort of steps away from our day-to-day is, can be very useful. Yeah, so I actually often remind boards and people working recruiting volunteers that they shouldn't assume that, you know, say they need someone to work on marketing and communications, that they should go after someone who does that professionally. Like, well, in 
in fact, they may want to do something totally different and, yeah. and, you know, they may want to facilitate your small groups or, you know, do workshops or do some other thing. And someone else who, you know, is interested in that and, and may want to, you know, try out those skills as a volunteer. So oftentimes volunteering gives you an opportunity to try something out different or like you said, just show up and be told what to do, not be in charge. And it's physical. There's, it's very concrete. Right, yeah. you have a something concrete has happened by the end, and and has had a clear impact on on someone. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. I want to share an exciting new opportunity with you today. Since everyone has shifted into remote work, lots of people are having to meet lead meetings online. You may have been comfortable with leading the meeting when everyone was gathered around a table together. But how can you help groups work effectively together online? I can help you as I've been creating online learning experiences since the early 2000s. If you'd like to build your confidence leading meetings online, join me for a four-week group coaching program where you will learn the essentials of effective online or virtual facilitation. My next cohort is starting September 22nd and registration is open now. Just go to greatsocialsector.com forward slash effective dash online dash facilitation. We're back on Mission Impact. One of the things I like to do is play a little game at the end here. Um, Fun. So I have a couple, I have uh, some icebreaker questions. So if you could never work again, how would you spend your time? Oh, if I could never work again. I, I hate to be one of those people that sounds like the people we're talking about who are burnt out. But honestly, <laughs> I, I really do love this work that I'm doing with organizations. And I would do this for free. I mean, I, that's a terrible marketing strategy, but it's true. I do need to pay the bills, so I can't do it for free. But, but I would. I think that would be one thing I would do. One of the things I know about myself is that I like variety. So that would be one thing I would do. Somehow finding out a, finding a way, as we mentioned, to be near a body of water would be something I would do. And I would play my guitar and sing as often as I possibly could. Um, find some other people to hang out with who also had nothing else they had to do and just spend hours singing. Like my life could be one long campfire with guitar. <laughs> um, that would be good. I would love that. Awesome. So what are you excited about? What's coming up next for you? What's emerging in the work that you're doing? So I actually had an opportunity recently to do a webinar for some social service agencies in DC. The mayor of DC, Mayor Bowser, has put some focus and some money into uh, looking at the district's response to trauma and to traumatized people. So I've been able to do one webinar in a series and I'm going to get get another one in the can <laughs> coming up in the not too distant future. And I'm really excited because those are the folks who I most want to be in touch with. These are the frontline workers who are the government folks in DC who are handing out food stamps and who are trying to find people housing and who are trying to find people jobs. And I think both burnout and potentially vicarious trauma is high in that group of folks. So I'm really excited to have an impact on those folks who are providing such important services in DC. And how can people find out more about you or get in, get in touch? So um, I'm on LinkedIn. People can uh, find Fermata Consulting on LinkedIn, F-E-R-M-A-T-A, or email me at fermataconsult at gmail.com. And uh, I... I would say LinkedIn is probably your best bet. Um, and we'll, we'll put those links in the show. Great. Notes, so that would be terrific. And I'm always happy to hear from folks who I don't know, uh, who have questions about the work I do. So 
feel free to reach out and shoot me an email and I'm happy to be back in touch. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on. Such a pleasure. I'm looking forward to hearing all of your podcast. (laughs) Not Not just this one. All right, awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. That's missionimpactpodcast, all one word, dot com slash show notes. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a colleague or a friend. We really appreciate you helping us get the word out.